In this episode of our Equalities podcast, domestic violence is discussed candidly, as well as racism and homophobia. Welcome to Metro Charities podcast series on equality. I am Emma Jones, head of Insight at Metro, which gives me the privilege of delving deeper into all the work we do and chatting to colleagues across the charity who deliver services in HIV support, mental health, youth work, sexual and reproductive health services, and a range of community-based projects. Marking the 10-year anniversary of the Equality Act coming into law on the 1st of October 2010, this month we have been reflecting on the significance of the word equality and what it means means to us as a charity that started as a lesbian and gay rights group campaigning in the early 1980s. Metro champions equality as part of our central mission. This concept and practice is pivotal to the services we provide in supporting people who have protected characteristics recognised in the Equality Act legislation, including those with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities, deaf and disabled people and black and ethnic minority service users and women. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking with senior leaders in the charity, both members of our paid staff team, as well as those who contribute voluntarily to realising our commitment to equality and diversity. Please join us in reflecting on the progress and barriers to equality leading up to the 2010 Equality Act legislation and beyond. I'm delighted to be here bright and early this morning um, in London and talking to Dr. Greg Usher in France, who's um, joining me this morning to discuss our concept of equality that we've been exploring this month at Metro, reflecting on the Equality Act 2010. Greg, uh, wonderful to talk with you. How are you this morning? Really well, really, really well. Nice to get going early, you know I like that. Absolutely. So um, jumping straight in, um, so we've talked a lot um, before about uh, your past um, through working on the Our History Project together at Metro. And so I know you grew up in Australia and I was thinking about how that um, might have affected your um, concept of equality growing up and realising that your sexuality was not mainstream. How was that? It was very different. So I grew up, uh, I'm 61 now, so I grew up in Australia in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. They were sort of my formative years and they're all really different sorts of decades. Um, the period in Australia from the end of the war, so from sort of 46 through to 1972, is often called the Great Australian Silence. Um, because it was a period that was um, wall-to-wall liberal governments, conservative governments, led by the one Prime Minister, mostly Sir Robert Menzies, um, who had this sort of monolithic presence in Australia, and there wasn't a lot of social progress. There was definitely no progress in the 50s or 60s around issues to do with um, human rights, uh, equal rights for women, um, issues around sexuality, and particularly issues around race, around Aboriginality. Um, that's why it's called the Great Australian Silence. But then in 1972, we had a really very significant event. Um, after all that period, um, Australians elected a Labour government under an iconic person called um, Gough Whitlam. Um, and so much shifted. Um, he introduced a Human Rights Act. Um, he ensured that university 
tuition fees were abolished. And it was for that reason in 1977 that I was able to go to university. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been okay for me. Um, and then, so that sort of 70s period, I think, was um, sort of changed me in a way. I was sort of semi-con... I was sort of, by the time Whitlam was elected, I was 13. So I was coming into teenagehood. My childhood had been fairly um, disrupted in the 60s. Despite this great Australian silence, we were, um, I was the eldest of six kids and we were often on the move. Um, I think I went to four different primary schools and two different high schools. Um, I uh, lived in a, a sort of family situation where there was um, domestic violence and alcohol, um, alcoholism. Um, Dad was often away because he was a truck driver, but when he was there, he was um, violent and um, abusive, particularly towards mum. So living in that sort of environment really shaped how I began to um, understand the world, I think. And it, it was in sort of very early on, even though I didn't have a language for it, but I realised that I was different. Um, in my attraction to other boys. Um, and that, that sort of started to coalesce in high school. Um, by that stage, we'd moved to Sydney as a, I was in a um, big sort of comprehensive high school, working class comprehensive high school. And I just looked and sounded different. So I was a subject of a lot of um, violence and um, abuse and being spat at and called names and... Um, it was difficult because my sisters and I and my brother, younger brother, were all, all really close and they were keen to protect me as I was keen to protect them and they came into, in for some flack as well. So it was during that period at high school that I um, sort of knew what I was feeling but pushed it well down because it didn't feel safe at all. And that was definitely the case throughout the 70s. I just sort of... Um, uh, understood that part of that great Australian silence, I think, is like an intense masculinism or something, word like that in Australia, which is intensely homophobic and seriously misogynistic. Maybe that's shifted in the years I've been away, but I think there's a, a strong culture of that that goes back centuries in Australian consciousness. Um, so it was in that sort of environment, I think, that I was trying to understand my sexuality. That's the 60s and early 70s. And also in terms of other parts of your identity, you've um, obviously mentioned about Aboriginal culture, and I was um, thinking about how your, your own Aboriginal identity was also an element of your development. Um, I was wondering how that the concept of equality and um, your heritage related also during that period. It's interesting. I think, um, again, Gough Whitlam changed things. He travelled to the Northern Territory. He instituted a program of land rights. He famously put um, Northern Territory soil through the hands, filtered through the hands of Aboriginal elders to say, this land is yours. This land is yours again. And um, that shattered 
the great Australian silence, but it also shattered something about what was hidden in my background. So, you know, through my mum and her dad, our ancestry is Aboriginal. That's been, you know, really clearly documented. But as kids, it wasn't spoken about. Um, the only time it would come up was when dad was pissed and I'm abusing mum and he'd call her a black bitch. And um, that, you know, resonated. We sort of understood. We're also really connected to Aboriginal communities. So I always went to the various primary schools I went to had um, uh, Aboriginal kids at them. And the Aboriginal kids often in those periods lived on the mission. So the mission was on the edge of town, um, never in town. And Aboriginal kids would be bussed in to come to the school. And I spent my time with Aboriginal kids in primary schools in places like Lismore and Kyogre and North Coast New South Wales, which is Bundjalung country. Um, so it was always there, but it really wasn't until after university that I began to understand more about my identity and to embrace my identity. But I think there is um, a, for me anyway, in terms of equality and identity, the intersection within me of Aboriginality, gay and working class um, has shaped the, my understanding of myself and the way I, I interact in the world and the what I, what I fight for, what I think is important and what I sort of undertake to challenge and, and um, in my attempt to create a better world where those sorts of identities are valued. You spoke about going to university and having the opportunity to do that, as you say, because of uh, things in, progressing in Australia. How was that then in uh, terms of your gay identity developing and um, having a sense of, of who you were as, a, as an adult? Yeah, I, I sort of knew at high school that um, I needed to be bright. I needed to do well. Um, and I did. I did really well. And at the high school certificate, which is a sort of year 12 leaving certificate, I did very, very well and topped the state in a number of subjects, including my favourite subjects around ancient history and modern history. Um, and I decided then to do arts law at the University of New South Wales, which was in Sydney. Um, and But I started that degree and I was like a fish out of water. I was this working class kid coming from Rudy Hill into um, the University of New South Wales, which was filled with um, middle class, rich white kids studying law. Uh, and I was so out of my depth. And I was out of my depth with my sexuality as well. And I just I was on the verge of, um, uh, I was really mentally unwell, I think. Um, and so I moved back, I dropped out and moved back home to Ridley Hill and um, mum was sort of worried and we went up to see this um, psychologist at the local community health centre. And, you know, I was pro uh, probably the, one, of, it's one of those benchmark moments, but he was so cool. He just, you know, he could have done anything. He could have, it was at a time when it was still illegal to be um, gay in New South Wales. He, I was 
told him about my my sexual feelings and um, he could have put me on medication. He could have, you know, suggested I have a stay in a place, institution. But he just said to me, and I remember him saying to me, just go away and get some time to yourself or re-enroll in university and be who you are. And I was just one of those moments where I thought that could have ended up so differently. But then, and I, the rest of that year, I sort of took time out, but then I re-enrolled and I thought, I'm not going to do law, I'm just going to do what I want, uh, which was history, because history has always been my passion. So I moved to Canberra, went to the Australian National University and um, um, studied ancient history, medieval history, modern history, just history, 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 which was fantastic. But um, I also became pivotally involved in university politics. Um, and and university politics at that time was about um, uh, student unionism. It was about feminism. It was about sexual orientation and gender identity. There was a lot of intense, vibrant, interesting, um, energizing conversation. I ended up being the um, uh, leader of the left action group on campus and running for president of the Students Association, and um, in that three-year period while I was studying history, I was also under beginning to understand all of the um, tensions and debates and loveliness around what it is to be different and to embrace all of that. So I was really lucky. God bless Gough Whitlam to have had that opportunity to be at ANU and uh, do the sort of formal education, but also the informal education. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that sort of richness and uh, can hear how, how much development was going on there for you. Was it was it specific for you at that period? You spoke about feminism and um, various issues, but LGBTQ plus rights um, in uh, as a sphere, was that also something that was on your radar? Were you engaging in terms of your sexual orientation in those politics? Yes. Yes, I was. And it was a really, it was sort of um, split endeavour in a way because the, there, were, there was a um, sort of LGBT officer as part of the Students Association. Um, there were LGBT knights, but I'm sure we didn't call them LGBT knights at that point. I think they were probably lesbian and gay knights or gay and lesbian knights. Um, so there was a range of different things happening that I was connecting with and I was, I understood deep inside myself that I was gay, um, but I really struggled to have relationships with men, even during that period at university and um, I didn't quite know how to do it really. Um, and I had very intense relationships with women. I had. Um, relationships with women who are still very much part of my life um, and their children are very much part of my life. It was during that period as well that I might have become a father, but um, we chose to, and my partner at the time chose to terminate. So there was a whole lot of, um, uh, on the one level, on a very personal level, I was struggling with my identity, but finding very rich connections with um women and on another level I was intensely involved in the politics of um, sexuality and gender and discussions of that that were happening on campus which led us in all sorts of different paths 
Um, so, you know, the left group on campus and the gay group on campus were also involved in a range of different demonstrations and protests against um, uh, logging and against um, uranium mining and against um, appointment of various people to the High Court in Australia. And I remember how rich all of that um, uh, protest and resistance was that were involved in at university. It was so educative. So um, we're going to skip, uh, Greg, over a few decades, I'm afraid, or it might be a couple of decades, <laughs> um, but I, I know you went, you went on to work um, in Australia um, professionally and in the, the public sector. But I just wanted to move on really to your, your shift to London, because um, we're so lucky to have you here in the UK. And um, how, how was that shift, uh, taking all that you've you sort of described about just your heritage and identity and obviously developing over that time, the equality shift and that lens of rights and of your own personal development moving to London into a new context, how was that? It was um, like... I felt often in my life, it was like being an outsider. It was like arriving somewhere where there are already things, already systems and processes and um, connections and networks set up. Um, And I was an outsider and coming into that. And what was interesting about that, I think, was that at that point, I think Metro was sort of an outsider as well. Um, there was a sense in which Metro was sort of in Greenwich or in Woolwich or in South East London, but not central to some of the discussion that was taking place around um, sexual orientation, gender identity and HIV prevention and support. Um, so there, that's part of what I felt when I first arrived. Um, there's also a, a very strong sense in the UK if you're Australian Um, and people I can generally sum it up when people say oh you're from the Antipodes Um, and that's sort of um, uh, patronising approach towards people from Australia, New Zealand, Canada those sorts of places is um, it's it's there and it's really clear it's it's now it's sort of like water off a duck's back, but it, it did add to my sense of feeling a bit of an outsider. Um, There's also the sense of being an outsider in terms of my uh, Aboriginal identity, um, which no one ever assumed. Um, and whenever I stated it, was generally well accepted, but not always well accepted. Um, and then there's also the thing that happened when Warren and I Warren, my partner, husband, when we first moved to London, is that we again experienced um, violence in London, homophobic violence. Um, And that sort of pushed us back into the box again. So that's throughout, from those days at high school of being spat at um, and assaulted because other boys assumed I was gay, um, that's gone out, gone on throughout my life, um, probably six or seven times requiring hospitalisation, once for both Warren and I. And that, that happened quite soon after we moved to London. Um, we were moving, living in um, just near Poplar. Um, and that sort of 
and when those things happen, you sort of just go back inside yourself a bit. But by the same token, coming to Metro, tiny at the time, I think there were 13 staff, um, coming to Metro was like a, it was a first job I'd had where everyone, every other single person around me at that time was LGBT. Um, so it felt, it was uh, transformative. It felt really liberating to be in a, a place where that was the, um, that was the sort of standard that you, 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 well, you needed to be LGBT to be employed by Metro at that stage. Um, so there were. There, Can I just check, Greg? The so period are we in now? Just so our listeners understand. That's two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven. And when you describe um, the horrible uh, incidents you experienced, um, it's shocking to hear. Um, still, I know it's ongoing issues, but it's always shocking to hear. How did you feel supported in terms of um, joining the sort of queer community professionally, but also in terms of um, living in London and being out on the scene, did you feel supported in what you were experiencing in terms of hate crime? Yes, absolutely. Within Metro, um, because Metro had been doing work around hate crime, um, but also uh, I think as a result of some of the uh, developments under Labour governments, that there was a, a really good system of LGBT support within the police um, there was there was support for victims of hate crime, um, follow up, um, so a range of different things just kicked in uh, once I reported the hate crimes that had happened to me. Um, that had not been the case in Australia. Um, I don't think it was a lot earlier. So the time when Warren and I were hospitalised would have been about nineteen ninety seven, and the police were rubbish. They didn't really take it seriously at all, even though it was very vicious assault um so yes within in london in that period 2005 2006 2007 i did feel very supportive within the charity but with the external structures as well so you mentioned during that period um metro being lgbt exclusively what was what was the work you were doing and how did it relate to the equality issues we're, we're talking about this morning what, what were the key issues uh, um inequalities, equalities that you were immersed in? Um, so until 2008, when we changed our constitution, Metro really did only employ LGBT people and have roles for volunteers who are LGBT. Um, but that changed with the constitutional change. And prior to that constitutional change, the, the prop, Metro was divided into three pillars. Now we talk about five domains, but at that point we talked about three pillars. And the three pillars were youth, um, mental health and HIV. Um, and they, it was the issues within those those pillars that I think were the equality issues that we dealt with. So for young people, it was the issues around coming out. Um, it was the issues around um, mental health and, and, and suicidal ideation. It was the issues around um, bullying and hate crime, some of which haven't really shifted much at all. So there are a whole set of equality issues for LGBT young people, but particularly for um, black, Asian minority, ethnic LGBT young people. And even in that period, prior to that change in our constitution, our youth groups were really very diverse. 
Um, and the staff and volunteers we employed and had roles for were really very diverse as well. That did cross over into our mental health work and the, the, the key issues there, the key equality issues around sexual orientation, gender identity and mental health are that um, LGBT people were and are overrepresented in those systems and yet those systems are still and were then unable and not geared up to be able to respond to them appropriately, often ignoring their sexual orientation or gender identity and the, and the role that that might have played in whatever um, issues they were experiencing. Um, so there was a, a, a lot of issues around access and support within mental health establishments. And, and so for, for that reason, we, we had you know, specific designated counselling and drop-in and support for LGBT people, which is what was then and still required. Um, and in terms of HIV, the um, the key issues I think were, and these these were fundamental issues for Metro. Um, that they were the issues around um, equity and fairness in relation to HIV prevention, HIV support. Um, as a charity, because we had that LGBT focus up until two thousand and eight, it was very difficult for us to work in HIV prevention and support with non-LGBT people. Um, who were affected by HIV, and that primarily in London could often mean um, BAME, um, non-LGBT people affected by HIV. So we had to work, and in fact, it was one of the main reasons why we went about changing our constitution, because we recognised that the alliances between those communities that were most affected by HIV, i.e. Black African and gay men, were absolutely pivotal. It was for that reason that I joined the board of Harbour Trust in 2006, 2007. And that for me came from my work with people living with HIV or affected by HIV with Aboriginal people in Australia. I understood that those alliances were pivotal pivotal in achieving any sort of success we needed around HIV um, to the point where Harbour Trust ended up merging with Metro in 2011. But that was not easy within the, the pre-2008 Metro. It was... Um, it led to a lot of disruption. The, the fact that, 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 we, that I was arguing, others were arguing that we needed to be supportive of all people affected by HIV. Um, and our board wasn't having it to the point where many board members resigned. And we ended up having to make the constitutional change to accommodate that. So those, those rights issues, that intersection of um, race, uh, infection, sexuality, um, it's, it's really um, complicated. And even within Metro itself, it's led, it had led at that point to a lot of um, uh, fracture and disruption. You also mentioned um, when you moved to London and, and first uh, engaging with Metro and working at Metro, that sense that it was outside central London, that it, the organisation was not in the, the centre of the, the gay scene, the queer scene. and um, as you're talking about the services who you're beginning to mention, how do you feel also um, people's socioeconomic identity, the locations they were living in and the, the communities they were living in was affecting the way you were your thinking and the work that Metro was doing and how it was developing? The, there was a, a very strong sense in the later 90s and early 2000s of what 
advertisers and others were calling the pink pound. Um, the the idea that there were there was money in the LGBT community and that um, advertising and marketing needed to be um, focused. There there would be results for. Um, companies if they focused on those communities and that may well be true but it's not the whole truth um, and that was really clear to me the areas of London in which we worked the areas of Western Sydney in which I worked before moving over the areas of Western Sydney in which I grew up um, the working class areas um, where poverty and hunger and lack of fair ed- access to education um, are still issues were very much visible in all that we did at Metro and still is, still is very visible. Um, the If you go along to any of the services we provide, we are not um, working with people who've had um, very significant advantage in terms of attending private school or access to private health care or um, uh, family connections. We're talking about people who've um, often uh, experienced marginalisation. And some of the feelings that go with um, poverty, um, some of the shame, some of the fear, um, the fear of hunger that goes with poverty, there, I think, um, they... They, they were really clear to me when I first arrived at, arrived at Metro and I was really keen to make that explicit and to have a conversation about that. I don't think it was... Um, I think it was just understood that this is, these are the communities, these are the places in which we work and, and that's great and that's fine. Um, but pointing out the difference and pointing out the extra challenges involved for people as a result of poverty and continuing to have that conversation, I think has been one of the things I've been able to bring to the charity. And that conversation's far from over. Um, I think as we, you know, uh, this this year, COVID, um, what that's the, the sort of naked reality it's given us about um, uh, how that virus affects unequally within our communities, um, again, lays bare what we what what our fo- one of our focuses needs to be as a charity certainly i was uh, thinking just as you were talking there mentioning food poverty um i know we were discussing last week in the senior leadership team the impact of marcus rashford's um campaign and the you know the labor's campaign around um free school meals and um that sense of this being one of the issues around covid tied to that um what do you feel are the key inequalities that Metro is now working with in terms of the impact of COVID-19 as we move on into the, continue into the pandemic? A number of uh, groups, a number of communities, I think, have been um, uh, shown to have experienced COVID differently, um, much more malignly than other groups or communities. I think, first of all, of people with disabilities um, and that's there are people who in the first wave of this pandemic needed to shield um, so the sense of isolation um, their capacity to 
um, connect with their personal carers, um, people who are coming in to give support around activities of daily living. All of the, those things became more and more complicated. And as and when we begin to emerge from this, the inevitable um, squeezing of public finances, I think is going to have an um, ongoing impact on um, those who are most vulnerable and most at risk, including people with disabilities. And of course, the, the virus has also made clear, and the response to the virus has also made clear that the, the structures that we have within health and social care really do expose black, Asian, minority, ethnic people much more seriously to exposure with um, with coronavirus uh, and the impact that the hugely disproportionate impact that coronavirus has had on uh, BAME communities is something that we can't avoid as a charity. We don't want to avoid. We need to embrace that knowledge and that data and we need to couple that with the data that we have about um, with the, the evidence we have that emerges from the Black Lives Matter movement. So the, the, this year has been so um, full in terms of um, having levers within the charity and outside the charity to pull, to try and sustainably and really effectively change experience for BAME people. Um, and that's, that's from an internal perspective at Metro as well. We know we've got to do better. I know that the, the staff group that's formed um, for BAME staff members, that the input they can have to our charity over the short, medium and long term is substantial. And being able to support that staff group to develop an action plan that our board and our leaders and our staff can feel confident is going to affect change for BAME staff and volunteers in Metro is um, super important to me. And that, you know, that I, that would not have happened at this point had we not been through this sort of um, connection of Black Lives Matter and COVID over the last six to eight months. It's, it's a good thing that we've um, been able to embrace the change that this that this opportunity presents to us. I have to say, I have a real sense of with working with you of, of how much, how difficult some of these challenges have been, but there just seems to be a sense of being energized also by the challenges. Um, I just wonder how you feel moving forward um, about how the equality agenda could be shaped through these challenges. I, I, I personally, I feel very energized um, by the challenge the challenges that are presented. Um, I feel energized because I think it's um, it, it's just going to strengthen um, the equalities work of Metro in everything that we do. The, the, our capacity to bring on board and harness the skills and talents and energies and creativity of everybody um, around equalities work is just going to be so much more strengthened. I think particularly around um, across the sexual orientation and gender identity spectrum, um, our belief that that spectrum of sexual orientation and gender identity, that SOGI spectrum 
is broad and um, uh, not confined to just LGBT identities will really open up our um, capacity to work with a range of people, but also the intersections um, with BAME communities and disabled communities. Because I think that for many years, BAME and disabled communities have understood that the, the spectrum of sexual orientation and gender identity is just that, that it's not confined to four letters of LGBT. It does open us up to be able to support a whole range of people. Um, but also to, I suppose, prosecute our case, to put it out there that this is what we believe, um, that intersectionality is fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's sort of a, a buzzword and a sort of code word in a way, but it's a, it's a reality. For people like me, it's a reality of just my life, of my lived experience that, you know, I am... Um, Aboriginal, I am gay, I do have a working class background, I am a man of a certain age and all of that, the stuff that, all of that stuff that intersects in me um, is the same, I've, you know, I've just fully internalised it, that's the same with everybody, that the richness of uh, everyone's lived experience. Um, we can help to um, unfold that unpick that to tease that out through all of the services that we offer so so that we can live up i think to our vision and our mission and our vision is to celebrate difference and to, to work to work towards optimum health for the whole community um so i yeah i think that 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 will continue to be the case for us thinking back on just one lovely thing you mentioned during this interview which is that you're married and um it made me think about the progress and equalities have been made in, on, on some fronts and certainly in sort of marriage equality. Could you tell me what it was like to get married as a gay man and, and how that feels? It was absolutely overwhelming. I was, um, if I think back to that day in 2009 where Warren and I got married, I had never envisaged from a young age that I would be allowed to marry. I'd never envisaged as well that I'd ever have children and that's probably part of the reason why I didn't. Um, but standing there and being married to Warren, I just felt so supremely overjoyed and overwhelmed and, um, and grateful, I suppose, because we got married in Kent we got married on the coast down near Dover at a place called um, Pegwell Bay in a lovely old mansion house, in a lovely old mansion house. And it was, and we embraced Warren's ancestry at the wedding. He has Scot Scottish ancestry. So we had a bagpiper and we wore kilts and um, it was uh, a wonderful day and we had family and friends over from Australia. So that, I, I felt really... Yeah, the word grateful comes to mind, grateful to the UK, because at that stage it still wasn't possible to marry in Australia. It is now, only within the last couple of years, though. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you for everything you've shared, Greg. Um, it's so personal, as well as obviously reflecting on Metro's work. Are there just two words you could give me to sum up for you what equality means? 
fairness, um, fairness and resistance. I just think now we found out this morning that a new Supreme Court judge who's anti-LGBT has been appointed to the US. This could tip the balance again in relation to gay marriage in the US. So many people who are married or who had intended to get married um, may have them invalidated or they may be backtracking. Um, it, it just... So in terms of, sorry, not resistance, probably vigilance, that we need to be constantly vigilant that um, any progress we've made is not wound back as forces that are not supportive of equality or diversity get stronger footholds across the world. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for listening to Metro's podcast on equalities. Please join us to continue the conversation online by following us at Metro Charity on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast series on your preferred app. And to find out more about our services, please visit our website, metrocharity.org.uk. Thank you.